Podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. Keith Berger is a teaching elder in the Presbyterian Church in America. He's also the Southwest Area Coordinator for RUF. And of all the places that Keith and Paige Berger could have moved to to uh, uh, carry out his work, they decided to move to Fort Worth so that they could be a part of this fellowship. We are excited about that. And, um, in fact, we've got a reception plan for them this morning. So if kids, if you like donut holes, and parents, if you like cake, we've got cake and donut holes this morning uh, as, so that we have an opportunity to uh, give a proper reception to uh, Keith and Paige Berger and their children. So that'll hopefully whet your appetite as you're listening to the sermon. We, um, we are grateful that uh, Keith is able to, uh, to uh, preach for us this morning while Darwin is away. So uh, uh, Keith, can I pray for you before we uh, begin? Father, we uh, thank you for an opportunity to hear your word. Uh, we'd pray that you would give us uh, receptive hearts. Uh, we'd pray that, that you would give uh, Keith your very words spoken to us. Uh, that you might uh, minister to us, uh, that you would uh, give us not just a uh, not just an academic understanding of your word, but that your gospel would uh, prove to be lively in our hearts and moving us to action. Uh, we'd pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning. If you have a pew Bible and you want to turn to Psalm two, that is located on page four hundred and forty-eight in the blue. Pew Bibles. It's what we'll look at this morning, and um, we do. We uh, we moved from Baton Rouge just the end of May. Uh, we're there for ten years. All my children were born there. We found a home there. We uh, were part of a church plant that started that we loved, and so in some ways it was very hard to tear your family and yourself from a place you love and. Uh, moved to a new place, but we have been very uh, warmly welcomed by Fort Worth Press. Thank you. Uh, it's good for my family. It's a good encouragement to us uh, about the gospel, how Jesus and the way He loves His people makes an impact everywhere you go. So uh, we're very glad to be here. This morning we're going to look at Psalm 2. And... Um, <clears throat> You know, by way of introduction in the Psalms, they really are the emotional uh, songbook of the people of God. Uh, for God's people, this is the place where the poets and the artists got to put their two cents in. Because what they supply for you and I is a place where, what do the emotions of the life of faith look like for the people of God? Which is good. Uh, it's good for those of us who are emotionally uh, wired. It's also good for us who are more analytically wired to hear the fact that the gospel affects all of who we are. So without uh, further ado, let me read Psalm 2. This is God's good and kind word. It's authoritative. 
It stands over your heart and my heart this morning. It's a grace of God to us because it displays for us Jesus. This is Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession." You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless His Word in our time. Father, You are a good and kind God. So we ask this morning that You would teach our hearts either for the first time or for the millionth time to be satisfied with being under a good King who is Jesus, our brother and our friend and our Savior and our Lord. And we ask in Jesus' name, Amen. 1975 was a big year for me. I was eight. Now, some of you weren't even born in 75. Some of you were a fair bit older than eight in 1975. But um, eight was a big year. Uh, My father had died when I was four, which means my oldest brother kind of took charge of the family. He didn't know that was his role, but he did. And he was kind of a father figure to me those years. We lived in this small town called Kennett Square, Pennsylvania, out in the country, on this little lane that had four or five lots, about five or six acres. And the lot next to us had been under construction for about three years. I never knew the people. They never finished the house. They never moved in. But there was this great foundation of cinder block and this huge pile of dirt that stayed there for years and we would play on it all the time. And eight was a big year because eight was the year I got some freedom. It was the year I got to ride my bike into town by myself. It was a small town. It was the early 70s. You could do that back then. Uh, there were a lot of things of independence that happened those years. And I remember one day uh, my good friend Jeff Nelson and I playing on that dirt pile. And I kind of threw him off the top of it fairly easily. And um, the next thing I remember is my oldest brother, Kevin, who at that time was 14, walking towards the dirt pile because he and his friends were kind of riding their dirt bikes around there at that time. And this is the thought in my head at that point. It's the year of independence. I'm free. And in that little eight-year-old brain, I remember kind of going to this 14-year-old, come on, bring it on, brother. Let's see what you got. And the next thing I recall is kind of Kevin having me by the seat of my pants and the shirt. And, you know, I'm flying horizontal through the air off the... And and somewhere in midair, this thought goes through my head. 
You really aren't king of the hill, are you? You know, roll out, sit up, dirt coming out of your mouth, and and my brother kind of standing on the top of the pile uh, looking at me. And it was a wake-up call to me. I just kind of remember that like, okay, hmm. Psalm 2 is a wake-up call, in a sense, for people. It is this clarion call that there's a king in the kingdom. And it's not you and it's not me. It is a wake up and smell the coffee psalm. It is a proclamation of the fact that there really is a king who reigns and rules all that there is. All that there is. And it's the God of Scripture. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, this psalm breaks down uh, fairly easily. Verses of three. You know, one, three, six through nine, seven through one. You know what I mean. One through three, three through six, six through nine, ten through twelve. Is the way it breaks down. And it goes like this. The first three verses are this. Uh, The stance of people at times against the authority of God. And then the psalm switches. And the next three verses are God's response to that kind of stance. And the third pairing is the destiny of the real king of the world in light of God's response. And then the psalm ends with this. Advice. Advice to you and I, really given from the point of view of the psalmist as he speaks a command to the hearts of the people of God, which I'm going to propose to you is mercy. And this psalm, though historically contextualized at a time when people understood kings, was a psalm that spoke a whole lot more than the author intended. Because it's a messianic psalm. It really reveals something about Jesus that I think the author himself didn't even know. And there's one more caveat, it's this. I have shamelessly stolen two illustrations, um, not in their detail, uh, but in their intention from a good friend of mine by the name of Brian Hagen, so as to not plagiarize, I give credit where credit is due there, and that's a good thing. But let me take you through this psalm. The, the psalm begins like this. It is this question that is being asked about the stance of people in the world against God. Look at the way it begins. Look down at verses 1 through 3. And it asks the question, why is it that nations rage and peoples plot in vain, that rulers and people and institutions plot against God and set themselves against it and say things like, let's break out and be free, be independent. Why is it that they want to be and proclaim to be and scheme to be autonomous from God? Psalm's fairly wise. It reveals something about the human heart, doesn't it? It reveals that there is this fallen, innate reality that we love to be deep down autonomous, independent. That we ourselves actually want to be the final court of appeal for what occurs in our world and in our life, for what we discern as right and wrong and good. And so the psalmist looks and says, why is it that people plot against God, against His counsel, against His rule, against His authority? And it, as you read that, it makes you think this at least. 
It reminds you and I of the people of God of the anatomy of sin. Because oftentimes, I know myself, that when I think about sin, I think about sin simply as a kind of breaking of some arbitrary rule. And then you read the Scriptures and you recognize that sin is this personal rebelliousness against a real individual. Why is it that people plot against God? There's a strong urge to cast off chains, to to cast off oversight. There's this serious setting of the human heart against authority. To step out from under the Creator and say, in essence, I belong to no one and I will serve no one. And we think it's hard to relate because it's kind of, it's, it's positive in the language of kings and rulers and We don't ride chariots and we don't brandish swords and that sounds so old-fashioned and therefore almost may sound irrelevant. Uh, But let me kind of put it in, in slightly more modern terms. It's not that modern, but Spurgeon was uh, writing this great sermon and uh, it's, the sermon is on divine sovereignty, but he, he writes, I think he gets at the real heart of what the psalmist is saying. Listen to what he says. He said, men will allow God to be everywhere except on His throne. They'll allow Him to be in His workshop to fashion worlds and to make stars. We sang about that today. They'll allow Him to be in His almondry to dispense His alms and bestow His bounties. They'll allow Him to sustain the earth and bear the pillars thereof, or light the lamps of heaven, or rule the waves of the ever-moving sea. But when God ascends His throne, His creatures gnash their teeth. And And when we proclaim and enthrone God in His right to do as He wills with His own, to dispose in a sense of His creatures as He thinks well, without consulting them in the manner, then it is... That, that folks are hissed. They love Him anywhere better than they do when He sits with His scepter in His hand and His crown upon His head. But this is the God we trust. Now, the obvious examples, right, they're easy. And if, you, if you think back, you remember when Timothy McVeigh who bombed the Oklahoma City building years ago? When he was in the death chamber, he quoted a, song, a, a poem by William Ernest Henley, a, a British poet from the 19th century. And he, he quoted, his last words were invic, from Invictus. And, and this is what he did. He says, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Now that is an obvious expression of one who thinks, though he's dust, that he serves no one. That's obvious. But the obvious ones are easy to see. Right? A, a radical anti-Christian movement that's easy to look at and say, wow, they, they, they plot against God. Or, you know, a, a government whose entire view is atheistic, right? The government's standing position is there is no God. That's easy to look at and go, there it is, verses 1 through 3. You know, or the vocal teacher in the elementary school who's going to make the example of the six-year-old who prays over his tuna fish sandwich before he, she, or he eats it and, you know, brings the lawsuit up. That's obvious. But the psalmist is getting at something a little deeper than just the obvious and the big. 
See, in our culture, in sweet Fort Worth, where there are Christians on every corner, where everyone goes to church, it's a little different. But that heart attitude that is constraining itself against the authority of God is there. Right? The person who simply in one way wants to live a good life, the moral life, you know, because what they've done is, is they've seen the way in which organized religion has done a disservice to God. And at times, they are right. But they have taken their conclusion farther than it actually should go. And out of a notion of saying, look, I just want to be fairly good. And so, religion and God and all that stuff, you can have it. That sounds like neutrality, but it's actually not. It is intending to cast off the authority and rule of the God who made them. And and that is kind of more self-conscious than a lot. Oftentimes, it's just people really... And this is not condescending. I don't mean it that way. It's really folks who just... They just haven't thought that much about it. They just kind of are living and having a good time. They just kind of want to enjoy life. Kind of wherever life leads, that's a good place to go. But you're made by God. And He is your King. There's a King in the kingdom. There's a King of the hill. Sometimes it's those who just simply have a serious intellectual difficulty to believing that God is what He says. They look at all the problems in the world. It is hard for them to see it and face it. And look, if you are any of those people, and that is you this morning, it is not that the church here at Fort Worth Pres is somehow demeaning or condescending to that approach. We, would, we welcome those kind of questions as honest questions. But as a congregation who serves a God under whom we are under, we would look and say, there's a king of the hill. He really exists. And again, all of those examples have been out there. But it is not any different for you and I who sit here this morning who have loved Jesus since we can remember, is it? I mean, you and I who claim Christ and who love Him, Are we not well acquainted with our momentary desire to cast off the chains and throw off the fetters? A desire to be autonomous. Aren't we very much in touch with our hearts every time you and I look and self-consciously have that battle in our hearts that says, I will love my wife and I will say the kind thing or I will play upon her insecurities and throw the dagger to the center of the heart. Which I did five minutes into Sunday school this morning sitting in the back row with my wife. We're well in touch with this need and desire to cast off the authority of the God who has made us and sustains us and rules us. It's really interesting because the psalmist looks and says, why do they plot in vain? It's folly. It's foolishness. Look at who we are plotting against in a sense. That's what the psalmist is saying. Thou God who threw the heavens and the stars and the universes and the galaxies into being 
by the mere power of His Word, who upholds it all, who keeps it all, who has redeemed you, who keeps your life and your breath, who has numbered your days. But it asks even a better question. Why cast off the authority of this God? See, it's not just asking the question about the nature of the heart of people, but why against this God? Why would we throw off the authority of a God who is good and merciful and full of grace and truth, who grants us Christ? Okay, there's the stance. And God responds, and I would say to you that He responds in a way that takes our breath away, that catches us off guard. How is it that the psalmist kind of responds? Where does God go? He doesn't, you know, it, it's interesting, isn't it? Look down at verses 4. You want to see God's response? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Now, if that doesn't catch you off guard, because that's a very strange view in a sense of God, isn't it? I mean, I myself, the, the things that we love to think about God are, and even us who love the church, we love the God who is kind. We love the God who is full of mercy. All of those are true. We love the God of gentleness and forgiveness. All of that is true. And we are coming there. In my Old Testament professor, I say this all the time, you will not hear this kind of profession, Ralph Davis used to say, from bubbly, bouncy Christians in bubbly, bouncy churches. The only confession that you will hear this from is from Christians who actually read their Bibles. And that's so strange. God's response is that He laughs. This isn't old Saint Nick. This isn't Santa Claus laughing, is it? This isn't like uh, ha-ha-har-har guffaw laughing. This isn't funny. We've all just told a good joke around the water cooler laughing. This is scorn. The God of heaven and earth, when He looks at the way in which people attempt to throw off His authority, He laughs. And then He speaks. And His response is speaking is to declare that the very thing people are attempting to do he has already settled. What he does is he says, this is my response. He'll speak to them in his wrath, verse 5, and terrify them in his fury, saying this, verse 6, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I have set a king in Jerusalem. I have set a king in the city of promise. I've put a king on a throne and I've sat him down there, which is this definitive thing of saying the job is done. Victory is won. I am king of the hill. Here he is. And it's a messianic psalm. And Jesus is the king. He really is king of the hill. Spurgeon said, it's not, you know, isn't that a grand exclamation? He's already done that which the enemy seeks to prevent. While they are proposing, he has disposed of the matter. Look at people plot. Look at hearts set against. Look at Jesus sitting down, ruling, reigning from now until forever.
And the interesting thing is, is that he goes from his response into this declaration of the destiny of the one who he set on the throne. The anointed one's destiny is verse 7 through 9. He says, I'll tell of the decree. The Lord says to me, you're my son. Today I've begotten you. This is a historical psalmist speaking about both the king in history and he says actually about Jesus. Now, don't read verse 7 and think that, this is the, that there's a beginning time of the sonship of Jesus. That's not what it's saying. But the historical psalmist is writing because he has actually seen God place a king in Jerusalem to defend a real space-time people against a real enemy like an Assyrian army. But the psalm speaks in future about Jesus. And he says, here is the king's destiny. Here's the destiny of Christ. All the nations belong to him. The ends of the earth are his possession. Every little bit of it. There's not a patch of grass. There's not an inch of dust. There's not a snow-capped mountain. There's not a part in this world that does not fall under the sovereign, eternal rule of God. Yesterday, today, or tomorrow. There never will be. Never. The tenor of the psalm is very stark, isn't it? Very stark. The entire earth belongs to Christ. And verse 9 gets even darker. Because it doesn't just speak about the destiny of the, the anointed, it speaks about the destiny of those who would oppose Him. Because Jesus, though full of grace and mercy, having come the first time to bring salvation to people who are desperately in need of it, comes back in the future to dash nations and people with iron. Beloved, we love the God of kindness. And yet we serve a God who is both kind and full of justice. There is no other way. And what response ought that bring to you and I who are in the church this morning who see those arrayed against the authority of God? See, by way of application, it has to do this. I have been in the ministry for 14 years. As you read blogs, I am dismayed at times by the way in which I see Christians argue with those outside the faith. And then with a haughtiness and almost a sense of perverse joy say, oh, we'll see about you in the end. There is a king of the hill. It is Christ the Lord. And He has come in mercy. But He is coming in judgment. And this is the thing that I think comes out of the application of this. The coming of Christ. The actual judgment that will come from Him. It's kind of like this. My guess is, is that if you were standing on the shore 
the morning that tsunami hit. However many years ago. And there was someone standing next to you whom you know thought you were foolish, who derided you, who thought you were silly, who mocked your religion, who mocked your God, who mocked all that you were, who in your heart of hearts you were really against. My guess is is that if you were standing on the shore next to them 15 minutes prior to that wave hitting that shore and you knew them, you would say what? Flee. Flee to safety. Run for your life. Run. Which is actually where the psalmist ends. It's the advice that comes from God to you and I at the very end of the psalm. Because look at what he says in verses 10 through 12. It is God's exhortion through the voice of the psalmist. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. What does wisdom look like in the face of this king? What does warning look like? And it is a mercy that God speaks to us both right, the word of grace and the word of warning. It is mercy. It is kindness. It is love. It is goodness. And this is the word of warning and the word of wisdom. He says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Isn't that weird? God is our Father. He is our friend. He is near to us. He is our dad. And the Scriptures say that we are supposed to serve Him and worship Him with fear and trembling. And yet, it puts this, rejoice with trembling together, which is beautiful. But we're to serve Him and love Him and worship Him and fear Him and rejoice in our knowing Him and being with Him. Trembling because we know who He is and what He has. And then He says this beautiful thing, kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. And kissing the Son is this language of kings. You know, what is it to kiss someone in that day and age? To kiss a king who is seated on the throne is both a sign of affection, but it's a sign of deference. But you have all those images, people who would kind of come into the throne room and kneel down and take the hand with the ring on it and kiss it. That's the language that we're getting at. Kiss the Anointed One. Kiss Christ. Serve Him with fear and trembling. Rejoice. Why? Lest we perish. Now, that's a word of a, that's a word of, of both advice and warning to those of you who this morning have never served Jesus a day in your life. But it is the same word of warning to you and I who know our own hearts who struggle to be under authority moment by moment. And this is where I'm stealing, again, Brian's illustration, but it's really my details. I want you to think of it this way. The beauty is is that God has 
brought Jesus. He has. And His mercy and His goodness we sing all the time is new every morning. When I survey the wondrous cross, that's what we sing, on which the Prince of Glory died. That's our richest thought. That's our greatest gain. Let me put it to you this way. The way the psalmist describes it is this. Um, When I, again, this is kind of when I was young, there was a train in my hometown that used to come through. And I don't know who the engineer of the train was, but I'm thankful for him. Because at the edge of my hometown on on Hillendale Road, he he put this almost 90 degree turn. It was this really sharp curve in the train track. I don't know why. But the train would slow down and have to go really slow. And it would kind of have to get about two miles in and then it would straighten out at the edge of town. And my brothers and I used to think this was a great idea. As the train would slow down, we would go and we would jump on it. And I don't know about you, but I was always mystified by that. And if you've ever been standing right next to a train, a big, huge train, you know how the ground buckles as that thing goes by you? It's terrifying. And yet for us, there was something strangely drawing about that power. And so, of course, being the last and the youngest of four, I was always the last to go. So my brothers would jump on and then, you know, it's that, it's that movie picture. Here's the young, dumb kid running along. And this is always the thought that went through my head. Dude, if you get tangled up in this thing, you are dead. But this is true. Y'all, the world is the tracks. And there is no getting off the tracks of God's world. None. And if you are on the tracks and the train is coming, where is the only safe place to be? It's in the train. Kiss the sun and bow our knees and serve God and serve Jesus and serve the Spirit with fear and trembling and rejoice that God has poured out His mercy. There is one safe place to be, beloved. It is in the mercy of God in Jesus. Let me extend the metaphor. The goodness of the Gospel is this. Not only is there a train that we are on, but it is a dining car where there is a feast that has been laid for you and me. And this is the beauty. Like, come. Come and bow the knee to Jesus for the first time or for the millionth. And there are so many of you this morning here who have known Jesus for such a long time. And it is the beauty of the Gospel that Jesus says this, I know your heart. Come. And kneel again. Listen to the beauteous end of the psalm. Blessed are those. Happy are those. Safe are those redeemed, forgiven, restored, renewed, encouraged, kept, brought to glory are those who take their refuge in Him.
And God's people with thankful hearts who serve their King say, Amen. Let me pray. Father, we would never write this ourselves. Because we would want a God that we can manage. And You are not. Lord, if we wrote it ourselves, we would never write a God who is so good and so rich in mercy. God, help us Your people. Help us Your sheep. Help us, Your children, those whom You love, to find Your kingship and Your rule a safe and joyful place. Help our hearts, O God, to be more at home under Your authority. Please, God, I know my own heart. Help the people whom You love to love the King whom they serve. We ask it for Your glory and for our benefit because we come kissing the Son. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. my fears away won't you chase my fears away then shall my soul with rapture trace the wonders of